have your Bibles with you, let's open up to the book of Judges. <clears throat> We're going to start going through the book of Judges. We just finished up Joshua, and Joshua was uh, a book that lays out for us the hope, the hopefulness of everything that God has for us. And, and here's one of the things we want to really grasp as, as the church, and that's this. We are in a position of having already attained victory. We're not looking for victory. We're fighting from victory. So often we think that we're missing something, that there's something that Jesus Christ hasn't given us. And if we just had that, we could experience a victorious Christian life. Like we see uh, Joshua and the elders around Joshua coming toward the end of that book experiencing. But we have already in Jesus Christ everything. There's not something else that God has to give us in terms of uh, something beyond the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and the gift of His Holy Spirit. There's simply our willingness to receive what God has given us, to receive that gift of the Spirit, to receive uh, the, the faith through the Word of God, and then not to, to apply that, not to just be hearers, but to apply what God's Word lays out for us, and then to walk, to do it. You remember Joshua and Caleb. The, the exciting thing about Joshua and Caleb is they come to us as the two spies who didn't see the giants. But they saw their God. So they weren't worried about the giants. Then you have the other ten who couldn't see God. All they could see was the giants. Scripture lays out for us as, as the Lord looked back on that time of the children of Israel during the numbers, during the, the period of wandering. As they were wandering... The Lord says, with most of them, he was not well pleased. We can count how many he was well pleased with. Two. Two. That's, uh, that qualifies as not many, huh? Yeah. Not many. Caleb and Joshua. The rest, the others, find themselves in a place of wandering through the wilderness. Wandering through a relationship. Or wandering if they have a relationship. Or or wondering if there's something more out there for him. And all those things were true. But it wasn't that Joshua and Caleb had something that everybody else couldn't have. And the same is true for the church today. We see the victories of Joshua breaking the back of the armies in the land of Canaan. Fulfilling the promise of God wherever they were willing to put the sole of their foot. He gave it to them. And as they come in, they divide the land. And then God through Joshua said, now you go and do what? Possess. You go possess. You own it already. If you don't possess it, you won't enjoy it. It's no different in our relationship with Jesus Christ. You own it already. But if you don't possess it, you won't enjoy it. Rather, you'll, you'll struggle. And that's entirely what the book of Judges is all about. It's interesting because as we look at the book of Judges, folks, Judges is the book of no king. And then when we come to 1 Samuel, in 1 Samuel we come to the book of man's king. His name was Saul. And then in 2 Samuel you come to the book of God's king. His name was David. And he looked forward to a promised king, another king that was coming. You remember? When he was presented to the people, do you remember what they said? When Jesus was presented to the people, they said, we have no king but Caesar. First Samuel, they rejected God the Father. 
When Pilate brought out Jesus and said, Eke homo, behold the man, shall I crucify your king? When they said, we have no king but Caesar, they rejected Jesus Christ. And you'll remember in Acts chapter 7 is Stephen is given the history of the nation of Israel. He states, you do just like your fathers did before you. You always resist the Holy Spirit. They reject the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, we find ourselves today living in the time of judges. There's no king in Israel, is there? Last I checked, no king. Prime minister, maybe, no king. There's no king in Israel. So we, we're in the judges. We're living in the time of the judges. There is no king. What are we looking forward to? What's next on the horizon? Man's king. Who's man's king? The Antichrist, who's going to come and have all the answers to the world. But all he's going to do is lead the world into chaos until God sends his king. God's king. Jesus Christ, the, the real return of the king. And he comes back and sets up his kingdom. We're in a time of judges. The time of judges is a time of heroes. Well, that's what the Hebrew word for judges means. Uh, Shaphat, it means uh, to rescue. It, the idea it has is a hero. A hero that comes along the scene and rescues God's people. And, and we look at our world today. Do we see the church as as an organization moving forward in victory and just changing the world for Jesus Christ? Not so much. But every once in a while we see a, a hero come up, don't we? Don't we see someone full of the Holy Spirit really creating a ruckus, a movement? Maybe the, their church explodes or they're in a mission field and, and they're, just, they're just knocking it out of the park for Jesus. It really, to me, resembles what we study in the book of Judges. For the most part... The people at the time of Judges were satisfied with what they had. But their satisfaction led them to complacency. And their complacency led them to begin to make peace with other gods. And rather than making God their sole God, the God that they were to love with all their heart, soul, mind, and spirit, remember? Rather than doing that, what did they do? They added God. And they added to God other gods. And they added to those other gods other gods. And it led them into a time of bondage. Until they reached a point where they would call out for a deliverer, a hero. And God would send them. God would send one to bring them out of that time of bondage and usher them back into a right place with the Lord. This book is about God's people today as far as I'm concerned. This book is about where we find ourselves today. And the question is for you and I, are we going to be satisfied that this is all of God that I want? This relationship. I'm going to go to church on Sunday morning and I'm going to go on Wednesday night. And, and that's got my God time. And, and Monday and Tuesday and Thursday and Friday and Saturday or something else. What, where are we? Where are we in our relationship with the Lord? Do we want more than what God has for us? You know, the interesting thing as we look at this picture, if we are in the time of Judges, let's say we're in a similar time to the time of Judges, there's another book that was written that refers to the Judges. That is the book of Ruth. Well, the book of Ruth is a love story. 
about redemption. About how God reached out. It's a love story about redemption and about the harvest. See, folks, we have a choice. We can live in the book of Ruth. A love story with God and a time of being a, a partner with God in the harvest. Or we can live in the book of Judges. Both occurred at the same time. But if we're living in the book of Ruth, here's the difference. One, we're a part of the harvest. Two, we are eagerly waiting for a wedding. Ruth to Boaz. The church to Jesus Christ. Eagerly waiting. Eagerly looking. Desiring to be with him. I think that's what really sets us in a place where we can escape the snares that we see laid out for the, for the children of Israel in Judges. And we're going to go through Judges chapter 1 and 2, and he's going to lay out for us the slide. When we start Judges 1, children of Israel are okay. We're okay. And, and they're, they're ready to move forward, and they're ready to go to war, and they're ready to do the things that God has for them. And remember, we talked about this. When exactly does the battle end and we don't have to go out to war anymore? Never. We see Jesus face to face and he says, enter into your master's happiness. Come into that period of rest. We're there. Until then, we're in enemy territory, right? We're in enemy territory. We ought to be expecting a fight every day. And so it's the same for them. Let's look at it. In, in Judges chapter 1, we see their first step. The first place they were at was fighting the enemy. They're ready to fight. Look what it says. Now, after the death of Joshua, it came to pass that the children of Israel asked the Lord, saying, Who will be first to go up for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? So they're starting off great, aren't they? Hey, they seek the Lord. Joshua had died. They seek the Lord and say, Lord, who's going to go up for us? You see, Joshua had broke the military might of the nations that were incorporated together. The, the group of seven kings, the group of five kings. He come through the middle, did a southern campaign and a northern campaign. So now they're just all separated. And that was for each one of the children of Israel to possess the boundaries that God gave them. So they say, who should go first? Who's, who's going to go first? Lord, we want to know from you what's going to happen. Who's going to go? So it says, the Lord answered him in verse 2. And the Lord said, Judah shall go up. Indeed, I have delivered the land into his hand. So he calls for Judah to go first. It's interesting because Judah is the tribe from which the king comes, right? Judah is a tribe from which the king comes that we really care about. The Mashiach Nagid, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. So Judah's to go first. What do we see? Didn't, didn't Jesus, who is our Joshua, go first and break the back of the enemy? Didn't he win for us the victory? Didn't he say from the cross it is finished? He didn't say it's almost done. He didn't say it's nearly complete. Now you just have to. He said it's finished. Hebrews said... God spoke to us in times past through the prophets. He has now spoken to us through his son. And what did his son say? It's finished. It's done. The work has been accomplished. Now by faith we enter in to that relationship that Jesus has for us. So he calls Judah to go first. And then in verse 3, so Judah said to Simeon, his brother, come up with me. 
to my allotted territory that we may fight against the Canaanites. And I will likewise go with you to your allotted territory. And Simeon went with him. So what do we see? Three things here. They sought the Lord. They obeyed the Lord. And they reached out to help from the brethren. They bound together. This is no different for, for the walk, the move, if you will, of the church today. Seek the Lord, obey the Lord, and bind together. We're brothers, for crying out loud, aren't we? We're brothers. We, we accept Jesus Christ as God's only Son. God in the flesh died on the cross for our sins, rose again on the third day. And He alone brings us into a relationship with God through faith alone. We're all together. We're in the right place. This is what we see them doing, man. They're looking great. Things are looking great. The tribe's working together just like the church ought to work together. Then Judah went up and the Lord delivered the Canaanites, the Perizzites, into their hand. And they killed 10,000 men at Bezek. Bezek means lightning. So they went to this city called Lightning and they killed 10,000 men. 10,000 men in Lightning. And they found Adonai Bezek which means the Lord of the lightning, in Bezek, and they fought against him, and they defeated the Canaanites and the Perizzites. And Adonai Bezek fled, and they pursued him and caught him and cut off his thumbs and his big toes. There's a really bad joke here. You know, Adonai Bezek was defeated. Get it? No, neither did anybody when John Corson said it. The, the point of it is when they cut off, it was a, actually a common practice in those days. Cutting off the thumbs meant you were no longer able to wield the sword. Cutting off the toes meant you weren't able to, to walk or run properly. So they were saying you're making you of no use. Now, this is going to make a little bit more sense when we look at the next verse. In verse 7, it says, And Adonai Bezek said, Seventy kings... With their thumbs and big toes, big toes cut off, <laughs> used to gather scraps under my table. As I have done, so God has repaid me. There's another way of saying that, isn't there? Whatsoever a man sows, so shall he also reap. Adonai Bezek had done this to 70 other kings. And there's another picture in that. Because if you surrender to the enemy, what does he do to you? takes your thumb and your toes and you won't be able to wield your sword for you and I in the church that's the word of God and you can't walk or run properly you can't follow what the Lord has for you because you've surrendered to the enemy so we see here they God gives them the victory the Lord is with them look at verse 8 or I'm sorry finish verse 7 as I have done so God has repaid me then they brought him to Jerusalem and there he died. Now the children of Judah fought against Jerusalem and took it. And they struck it with the edge of the sword and they set the city on fire. And afterward the children of Judah went down to fight against the Canaanites who dwelt in the mountains in the south and in the lowland. And Judah went against the Canaanites who dwelt in Hebron. Now the name of Hebron was formerly Kirjath Arba. And they killed Seshai, Ahiman, and Talmai. Those are three important names. They are the three sons of a man named Arba, who was the father of Anak, or the Anakim. This is the king 
Arba, the king of the giants, and his three sons. Now, do you remember who is leading Judah? Judah is being led by a scrappy old man who still has a lot of fight in him. His name is Caleb. His name is Caleb. Caleb is there leading them. And remember, he said, hey, I want the, I want the place of the giants. Give me that place. And so he was given Hebron, where Kirjath Arba, the king of the giants, lived. And he defeated there the Anakim. Those were the giants that they were so afraid of 40 years previously. And they wouldn't enter into the promised land. Now, then Caleb says in verse 12, Whoever attacks Kirjath Sefer and takes it, to him I will give my daughter Aksa as wife. And Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, took it. So he gave his daughter Aksa as wife. Now this is kind of neat because we see that this, this attitude of faith runs in the family, in Caleb's family. Not just Caleb, but his brother's son, Othniel. And for those of you who like Bible trivia, here's a little piece of it for you. We're going to be introduced to a first judge in a couple of chapters. His name is Othniel. Othniel will be the first hero in the book of Judges. And he is Caleb's son-in-law, was Caleb's nephew, but marries Caleb's daughter, Aksa. Now it happened when she came to him that she urged him to ask her father for a field And so she dismounted from her donkey, and Caleb said to her, What do you wish? So she said, Give me a blessing. Since you have given me land in the south, give me also springs of water. And Caleb gave her the upper and the lower springs. Now we saw this already in the book of Joshua as it was going on and and telling us about what happened to Caleb. We, We got a preview of it already. The point is, she understood that the land was of no value without water. That's a big picture for us throughout the land of Canaan. Because the land of Canaan was a land that didn't have water. It needed to rely on the Lord for water. It was to rely on Him and He would provide that water. And so here we see an example of this woman going to her father and saying to her father, I need that living water. Just like the woman at the well came to Jesus. As she was drawing the water, Jesus said, I know water you won't ever have to draw. She said, give me that water. He said, I am living water. I have living water to give. So we, we want to recognize, we want to understand as we look at that, that picture of desiring that living water from the Lord, from God, that's going to carry us through. Living water, guys, is simple. Ephesians chapter 5 tells us to wash yourselves with the water of the word of God. You want living water in your life? The Word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. That's the living water. And if you don't want to just live in a dry land, you need to have living water flowing through it. Well, now the children of the Kenite, in verse 16, Moses' father-in-law went up from the city of Palms. City of Palms. Also known by another name. Jericho, Jericho, or the Hebrew, Bet Yerah, or the house of the moon god. That's kind of interesting. House of the moon god, that moon god, that same moon god, would later on down the line become known by the name of Allah and become the god of the Islam. 
the God of Islam. The house of the moon God, we have here Jericho, the city of palms, with the children of Judah, into the wilderness of Judah, which lies to the south near Arad. And they went and dwelt among the people. And Judah went with his brother Simeon, and they attacked the Canaanites who inhabited Zephath, and utterly destroyed it. So the name of the city was called Hormah. Also Judah took Gaza, that's the same Gaza we read about today, with its territory, Ashkelon with its territory, Ekron with its territory. So the Lord was with Judah, and they drove out the mountaineers. But they could not drive out the inhabitants of the lowland, because they had chariots of iron. Don't miss what that verse says. Who couldn't drive, who couldn't drive them out? They couldn't. Why couldn't they? Because they didn't believe that they could. Psalm 27 says some trust in, in chariots. Some in horses. But I will trust where? In the, in, the, in the Lord my God. I will put my trust in him. So here we see that they saw the chariots and they were not able. They were not able to take the lowlands. And they gave Hebron to Caleb as Moses had said. Then he expelled from there the three sons of Anak. But look at verse 21. We see the second step. First we see fighting with the enemy. Then we see sparing the enemy. But the children of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who inhabited Jerusalem. So the Jebusites dwell with the children of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. So they conquered Jerusalem. But rather than driving out the inhabitants, they let them live there. And the, the Benjamites, the, the, the tribe of Benjamin, they didn't force them out. They just lived with them. So the initial thing is sparing the enemy is a direct response to not obeying the word of God. God's word was clear. Don't make peace with them. Don't make covenant with them. Don't let them live with you. Drive them out of the land. All the way out. But they made peace. They spared the enemy. And the enemy will to them become a source of stumbling. Verse 22 it says, Now the house of Joseph also went up against Bethel. And the Lord was with them. So the house of Joseph sent men to spy out Bethel. The name of the city was formerly Luz. And when the spies saw a man coming out of the city, they said to him, Please show us the entrance to the city, and we will show you mercy. So they showed him the entrance to the city. They struck the city with the edge of the sword, but they let that man and all his family go. They made peace. This man, a lot of people want to point to this man and say it's just like Rahab. There's a lot of differences between this man and Rahab, isn't there? Rahab, she said, I want to be a part of you. I want to accept your God as my God. I've seen what God Most High can do. She was looking for salvation. And if he was looking for salvation or any were looking for salvation, God offered it to him. God gave it to him. But here they just make an offer. They make a deal. They make a covenant. They make a promise. Hey, I'll tell you what. Show us how to get into the city and, and we'll spare you. So they allow him to stay. And the man went to the land of the Hittites and built a city called its name Luz, uh, which is its name to this day. However, again, sparing the enemy, Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Bet-Shan. 
and the villages, or Tanakh, and its villages, or the inhabitants of Dor, and its villages, and the inhabitants, it goes on and on and on. Bethshean. Bethshean should bring to your mind a remembrance of a king. Actually, the king called man's king. His name was Saul. Saul and Jonathan are hung on the walls of a city called Bet-Shean. If you come with us to Israel this year, we'll go to Bet-Shean. You get to walk through it. It's one of the, the, the neatest areas within Israel to go visit the, the, the ruins there of Bet-Shean. But here we see they, were not, they did not drive out. They did not possess the land. They did not do what God's word said they were able to do. They didn't believe. They didn't have the faith that they needed. They didn't drive out the inhabitants of Iblim and its villages or the inhabitants of Megiddo. Megiddo should ring a bell to you. Megiddo, Har Megiddo is the valley of Megiddo, Mount Megiddo, also known as Armageddon. And its villages, for the Canaanites, were determined to dwell in that land. And so the Canaanites were determined, so they didn't push them out. They let them stay there in their midst. And it came to pass when Israel was strong that they put the Canaanites under tribute but did not completely drive them out. They didn't drive them out. They made them what? Slaves. They put them under bondage. Whatsoever a man sows, what's it say? So shall he also reap. In the time of the judges, are we going to see Israel put into bondage to the same people that they put into bondage? Yeah, absolutely. Would that have been the case had they driven them out, had they been obedient to the Word of God? No. But they were disobedient. They were disobedient to what God's Word said. Look in verse 29. Nor did Ephraim drive out the Canaanites who dwelt in Gezer. So the Canaanites dwelt in Gezer among them. Nor did Zebulun drive out the inhabitants of Kitron, or the inhabitants of Nahalal, or the Canaanites. So the Canaanites dwelt among them and were put under tribute. Nor did Asher drive out the inhabitants of Akko, or the inhabitants of Sidon, or the inhabitants of Achlab, or Akzib, Helba, Afik, or Rehob. So the Asherites dwelt among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land, for they did not drive them out. Nor did Naphtali drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh, or the inhabitants of Beth Anath, but they dwelt among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land. Nevertheless, the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh and Beth Anath were put under tribute to them. Again, making them their slaves or servants. And the Amorites forced the children of Dan into the mountains, for they would not allow them to come down to the valley. So the tribe of Dan gets pushed out of the land altogether, up into the mountains. And the Amorites were determined to dwell in Mount Harris, in Aijalon, and Shalbim, but... When the strength of the house of Joseph became greater, they were put under tribute. Now the boundary of the Amorites was the ascent of Akrabim from Selah and upward. Once we become satisfied with less than God's best for us, we will never be what God wants us to be. Once we become satisfied... With less than God's best for us, we will never be what God wants us to be. They began to, to spare the enemy. They began to take that first step 
away from God's plan for their life. Here's how the scripture lays it out for you and I. The scripture lays it out like this. The first step away from God or from the Lord is friendship with the world. James 4 tells us we're to keep ourselves unspotted from the world. That friendship with the world is what? Enmity with God makes us an enemy of God. So we begin to make friends with the world. In 1 John 2.15 it says, And we begin to love the world. And if we love the world, the love of God is not in us. He goes on to say that leads us to being conformed to the world. Romans 12.2, right? I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto the Lord, which is your reasonable act of worship. That you would be transformed by the renewing of your mind, but that you would not be, what, conformed to the world. But here, what do we see? That next step, that third step, being conformed to the world, conformed to what it is that the world wants. And finally, 1 Corinthians 11.32, then you're condemned with the world. Jesus said you can't serve two masters. You will love one and hate the other. So you either love one and hate the other. You can't love them both. I'm sure the children of Israel thought, hey, there's enough love in me to go around. I can love God, and I can love Baal, and I can love Ashtoreth, and I can love my neighbors, and I can love all these other things in the world. There's enough room. But God said, no. We're diametrically opposed. You love me, or you don't. Love me, or hate the world, or love the world, and hate me. But you can't have it both ways. But that's what we see the children of Israel doing right here. And then, the next step in chapter 2, they begin to imitate the enemy. They begin to start looking just like they did. Following the gods they they followed. Now at this point, the nation of Israel gets a visitor. His name, you and I know, is Jesus Christ. The scripture calls him... The angel of Jehovah, or the angel of the Yahweh, the capital A angel of the capital L-O-R-D. Anytime you see that phrase, it is speaking of God in the flesh. Now, God the Father is spirit. He's invisible. No man has seen him at any time. Timothy tells us that. Who is God that was made flesh? Jesus Christ. The angel of the Lord. Here he begins in chapter 2, verse 1. Then the angel of the Lord came up from Gilgal to Bochim and said, I led you from Egypt and brought you to the land of which I swore to your fathers. Who did that? Yeah. And who else? The Ahavahweh, the covenantal name of God, capital L-O-R-D, Jehovah, Yahweh. You put your favorite phrase in for... The name of God, Y-H-V-H. He did that. And the angel of the Lord says, I did it. So the angel of the Lord is Almighty God. Period. You'll see that more and more as we go through the Old Testament. And I said, I will never break my covenant with you. And you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. 
but you shall tear down their altars. But you have not obeyed my voice. Why have you done this? So here is Jesus, God in the flesh, coming to the children of Israel and saying, Hey, I promised you, I made a covenant with you forever. And I asked you not to make peace and to tear down their altars. Tear down the altars for the false gods. Wipe them out. But you're not doing that. Why? Why? Therefore I said, I will not drive them out from before you, but they will be thorns in your side. And their gods will become a snare to you. At at that point, the work of possessing will remain unfinished. And the work of possessing will remain unfinished until the return of the king. Until Jesus sets up his earthly kingdom. The Lord laid out. Remember I told you, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit were rejected. So the Word of God laid out that God would spread them. He would spread the the nation of Israel, the Jewish people, to the four corners of the earth. But He said a day would come when they would put their trust in Him and He would bring them back. Folks, that day hasn't happened yet. We see the beginning of of that movement, the fulfillment of Ezekiel 38 when Israel became a nation. But if you go to Israel with me, less than 10% of Israel even acknowledges a God of any kind. So I would say that's not a fulfillment of the scriptures that say when you turn your eyes to me, when you come to me with your whole heart. But that day will happen. Because the prophet said when Jesus Christ returns, they will look upon him as one looks upon their only son. They will mourn for him. They'll see that he was pierced in his hands and his feet. They'll acknowledge him as Messiah. And Jesus will lead them as their king to possessing the land. Jesus will do it. But here, Jesus comes and says, there's not going to be a possessing. You're not going to inhabit it. I'm not driving them out anymore. I'm not opening the door. Now, those things that you want so bad are going to become a snare to you. The scripture lays out for you and I that we're to cast off weights and the sin which so easily ensnares you and run the race laid out before us with endurance. That's what it is to follow Jesus with your whole heart. But here, that's not what they're doing. They're making peace. They're piling on the weights. And they're leaving that sin that will ensnare them. That sin is idolatry. Idolatry to the Baals. Idolatry to the Ashtoreths. If you read Reverend Hislop's book, uh, um, Tale of Two... What is it? Two Babylons? The Two Babylons. Anyways, you look it up. What is it? I don't know. She's supposed to know, though, isn't she? She's supposed to remember for me. She's the better part of my mind. Anyway, he writes, and I think it's two Babylons. I'll look on my shelf. The point is, he points out all of the false deities, all the false gods, Greek mythology, Roman mythology, Egyptian, uh, Chinese, all had their foundation at a little place known as Babylon, the Tower of Babel, the first point, and Babylon further on. And so... When the scripture calls the Baals or the Ashtoreths, 
He's calling those same type of gods by whatever name they're by. The children of Israel are always going to struggle with them. So look what happens. He says this, there are going to be thorns in your side. They're going to be a snare to you in verse 4. So it was when the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the children of Israel, that people lifted up their voices and wept. People lifted up their voices and wept. But you know, in the book of Joel, Joel the prophet says, Rend your heart and not your garments. The people make an outward show of sorrow. Sorrow for what? The consequences. Now we're not going to get all the land. They're sorry for the consequences, but not sorry enough to repent. Repentance means what? A change of direction. That they change what they're doing. But they're not willing to change. They're not willing to walk away from the sin. They're just upset that now the land is not going to be theirs. And they called the name of that place Bohim, which means weeping. And they sacrificed there to the Lord. Now then we have this insert, verses 6 through 9, which we've already read out of the book of Joshua, which talks about how the people walked when Joshua was king. Listen, and when Joshua had dismissed the people, the children of Israel went each to his own inheritance to possess the land. So the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great works of the Lord which he had done for Israel. And Joshua the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died when he was 110 years old. And they buried him within the border of his inheritance at timnath Harris, in the mountains of Ephraim on the north side of Mount Gash. And when all that generation had been gathered to their fathers, another generation arose who did not know the Lord, nor the work which he had done for Israel. Now according to... According to Deuteronomy, there was a very specific work that they were to do. A very specific thing that they were to do. They were to make the Lord their focus. They were to focus on the Lord. Every sabbatical year, the priests were going to read the book of Deuteronomy at the tabernacle, at the Feast of the Tabernacles, they would read the book of Deuteronomy, which was the retelling of the law. And they would describe in Deuteronomy chapter 6 what it was that the generation was responsible to do. The generation was responsible to, if you remember, love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. They were to teach what God had done to the next generation. They were to teach them wherever they were, whatever they were doing. They were to make sure that they fulfilled those responsibilities. They were to make sure that they were thankful for God's blessing. And the fourth thing, to separate themselves from the worship of the pagan gods. Love God. Teach your children. Uh, always be thankful for God's blessing and separate themselves from the world. One of two things happen. That generation didn't teach their kids or their kids would not submit to what God wanted to do. And when that happened, a generation that didn't know anything that God had done for them arose. They didn't fulfill the obligation or the promise to God and they lost the possessions 
that the Lord had laid out for them. They lost the opportunity to possess the land. So verse 11 begins that fourth phase. The third phase being imitating the enemy. Now the fourth phase, they're going to begin to obey the enemy. Then the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. Baals. Baal was the storm god, the god who brought rain. You remember that they were put into a land that had to rely on God for water. And the land already had a god for water. His name was Baal. And so they were, all the nations around them were worshiping Baal. And there were different Baals. They had Baal this and Baal that that were dependent on what area of Canaan you were in, but it was all the same. That was the God of rain. You remember Elijah when he does battle with the high priest of Baal, what he asked them to make their God do? Make it rain. Make it rain. They can't make it rain. God shut up the heavens for seven years. And the heavens didn't begin to rain again in the nation of Israel until Elijah prayed to God Most High. And then the rains came. So this is the Baals that they began to serve. They began to serve the the God of that time. The God of the rain. The God of prosperity. With the rain came what? The crops. With those crops came uh, the money. The rain was the key to economic survival. Without the rain, you, you had nothing. With the rain, you had it all. And they began to serve the Baals. But look at verse 11. The children of Israel did evil, what? In the sight of the Lord. Listen, the relationship with God is always pictured throughout Scripture like a marriage. That Israel was the wife of God, married to the Lord. Yet, when they would commit idolatry, it was always described as adultery. Now, adultery is bad enough, but adultery that is committed in the sight of your husband or in the sight of your wife is extremely offensive. This adultery is committed in the sight of the Lord, right before his eyes. Right before him, they committed this act. And the next thing first... Look at verse 10. When we talk about obeying the enemy. First, what did they do? They forgot God. And and then in verse 12, they're going to forsake him. Look, it says, And they forsook the Lord God of their fathers who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. And they followed other gods from among the gods of the people who were all around them. And they bowed down to them and they provoked the Lord to anger. So he forsakes the Lord. They forsook the Lord and served Baal and the Ashtoreths. Ashtoreths, at least four different names for Ashtoreth. Ashtoreth, Ashtoreth, Ishtar, and Ashtart. Each one of those gods is a goddess or the wife of Baal, who is the goddess of fertility. And she was worshipped by going into a temple prostitute. And during the act you would be praying to Ashtart or Ashtoreth, asking for the same fertility to be applied to whatever you were doing. And that really appealed to the children of Israel. And they struggled with that for the next 800 years. That's a long time. And that's how long God waits 
before he's going to send them into captivity to Babylon for their idolatry. Well, they served the Asherahs, and the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel. So he delivered them into the hands of the plunderers who despoiled them. The third thing we see, they forgot God, they forsook God, and then they forfeited they forfeited the promises of God. So now, rather than the Lord working for them, he delivered them into the hand of the plunderers who despoiled them. And he sold them into the hands of their enemies all around, so that they could no longer stand before their enemies. Wherever they went out, the hand of the Lord was against them for calamity, as the Lord had said, and as the Lord had sworn to them, and they were greatly distressed. In the New Testament, the scripture says it like this. That there's a brother among you who just can't get it. He's, he's steeped in sin and he won't, he won't repent, doesn't want to repent. The Lord says to put him out from among you. Send him out into the world for what? The destruction of his flesh. What's the hope? Punishment? Is that the design? The, 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 the hope is always repentance. God allowed this not because he was mad at the children of Israel, not because he hated them, not because he sought to destroy them. He allowed it so that they might repent and turn toward him. The Lord says in Hebrews that he chastens those he loves. If you're one of God's kids, if you're part of God's family, and you are living in a life of disobedience, God will chasten you. If you are not being chastened and you are living a life of sin, you have to ask yourself the question, am I really his? Because in Hebrews, he says, he chastens those he loves. Like a father chastens his children. And that's what we see the Lord doing here. Not with the attitude of destruction, but with an attitude of saying, cry unto me, seek me for repentance, and be restored. But what you're doing is wrong. So what does God do? He takes his hand off the nation of Israel and he lets the things that were going to happen to them happen. Whatsoever a man sows, so shall he also reap. They're sowing to false gods. They're going to reap. What did the demons promise? What do the demons give? Do the demons fill our pockets with gold and make life right? If they did, then the nation of Israel wouldn't have been able to displace all those people. They don't. They lie. They promise everything gold, but nothing gold stays. They promise all these great hopes, but none of those hopes come. They just lead to destruction. And so the Lord lets them run down that path of destruction until they decide that they're going to turn toward Him. And that's what it says in verse 16. Nevertheless, the Lord raised up judges who delivered them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Now, Keep in mind, Shaphat in the Hebrew, what the Lord is talking about, not like a judge who judges between right and wrong. What it's talking about is one who rescues, one who saves the damsel in distress, the hero. So the Lord raises up a hero to go and to deliver the people. But listen, the fourth thing that we see, they forget God, they forsook God, they forfeited the promises of God, and then in verse 17, they fail to learn. Yet they would not listen to their judges, but they played the harlot with other gods and bowed down to them. They turned quickly from the way in which their fathers walked in obeying the commandments of the Lord 
and they did not do so. And when the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge and delivered them out of the hand of the enemies all the days of that judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who oppressed them and harassed them. But it came to pass when the judge was dead, they reverted and behaved more corruptly than their fathers by following other gods. They wasted their suffering. Suffering can accomplish two things, right? Suffering can make us better or suffering can make us bitter. And the suffering that they went through and the deliverance that God brought, they never learned. So their life was this constant roller coaster ride of ups and downs, of victories and then horrible defeats, of walking with the Lord for a moment and turning their back on the Lord for a moment because they will waste that suffering that God was using in their life because you and I, let's face it, human beings learn in the furnace of affliction. That's where you learn. Countries aren't developed. Powers, the United States doesn't become a power because life was filled with ease. It becomes a power because during the time in the furnace of affliction, men and women buckled down and made something happen. In the furnace of affliction, people grow. But in times of prosperity, what do people do? They get fat and lazy. That's how it is. That's a perfect picture of the United States today. Fat and lazy. And thinking that we can sit back on our haunches. How about Rome before that? Fat and lazy. About Greece before that. Fat and lazy. What about Babylon before them? Fat and lazy. Same thing over and over and over again. What does history teach us? That man fails to learn from history. So during those times of struggle for you and I, rather than looking at those times of struggle and saying, Oh, God, deliver me out of this. We need to pray, God, be glorified through this. Let me, be, let me bring honor and glory to you through this time. Let me be a witness to you during this difficulty. I'll never forget it because the day that, uh, that Cindy was diagnosed with cancer, the first words out of her mouth was, Oh God, what's happening to me? The first words out of her mouth was, I want to be a good witness. That was her heart's desire. I want to be a good witness. I want to glorify God in this illness and she, she, the news just kept getting worse and worse when, when we, we found out about it. From almost day one, it was incurable and you're going to die any minute. So, um, and it kept going downhill from there. So there wasn't a lot of hope that was offered up for anything else. But the attitude of the heart was, I want to glorify the Lord. Not, God, why did you do this to me? It was, I want to bring glory and honor to you. Because our life... The reason we're living is not for what we can have here. I love my family, and I don't ever want to be separated from my family. But one day, I live long enough, God is going to do it. One day, God's going to call members of my family home. Maybe members of my immediate family. Maybe the Lord will call one of my sons. Or, or, or God forbid, any of those things can happen. But I believe... That God, no matter what happens, no, no matter what occurs with my family, no matter what happens in life, 
that God is calling me to seek first His kingdom and His righteousness and realize this life, this place is not my home. This isn't the end all be it all. That big house or that job or that thing is just a thing. And it's all going to burn sooner or later. I'm living this life for eternity. I'm living this life for the time I'm going to spend with the Lord. And I better pass that message on to my kids. So that in my family a generation doesn't arise. It doesn't know what God has done. What God can do. Because that's my hope. I'd love my my kids to have an ease of life, but more than I want them to have anything else, I want them to have a relationship with God. And whatever God's got to do to make that happen, bring on the rain, whatever it's got to be. Let the winds blow, whatever's got to happen. Whatever has to happen for them to arrive safe at home. Most important thing. And so we have the time of judges. Is this the heart of a, of a father who just wants to bring punishment? It's the heart of a father who wants to turn his children around. Go in a different direction. Change what you're doing. But listen, at the end of verse 19 it says, But they did not cease from their own doings, nor from their stubborn way. They did not cease from doing what was right in their own eyes. In those days there was no king in Israel. And every man did what was right in his own eyes. Perfect declaration of life today. In those days there was no king. And the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel. And he said, because... Now listen to this. What's he say? Because this nation. Wait a minute, whose nation is that? They're his. Usually he calls them my nation. He's not claiming them right now. Because this nation has transgressed my covenant, which I commanded their fathers and has not heeded my voice. I will no longer drive out from before them any of the nations which Joshua left when he died. So that through them I may test Israel, whether they will keep the ways of the Lord to walk in them as their fathers kept them or not. So the Lord lays out this test. You know the interesting thing about that word test? You know the difference between test, trial, and temptation? Nothing. It's the same word. Same word. What God uses to test, the devil uses to tempt. And you and I see as trial. We're tempted when we listen to those things that Satan's whispering in our ear. The test is not to show that we are going to fail. God provides the test to show us what we can do. A test pilot doesn't get in a plane to crash it. Test pilot gets in the plane to show you what that plane can do. So God allows these things to be surrounding them, to test them, to show them what they're capable of. And every time they fail, he raises up for them a picture in a hero. And he says, here's what you can do. What you see Othniel do, you could do that. What you see Gideon do, you could do that. 
what you see Jephthah do or what you see Deborah do or what you see any of these judges do. God is, is, is saying to them, you can be this. All you have to do is submit your will to his and allow God to do that work in them. So the book of Judges, the book of Heroes becomes a training field, a, a testing field to say, here's what you can be if you want it. But sadly, majority of the people are satisfied with ho-hum existence. Majority of the people are satisfied with this much of God. Majority of the, of the world are satisfied with the relationship that they have today. Hey, I'll be the first one to tell you, I am not satisfied with my relationship with God. And if I ever get to the point where I tell you I'm satisfied with my relationship with God, you better kick me out of here. Because that's lame. There is never a time to be satisfied. There's never a time to say, what I got is good enough. No, it ain't. No such thing is good enough. Your relationship with God is good enough when you're standing in front of him and he says, well done, good and faithful servant. Prior to that, Time is late. We got to get busy. We got to start being who it is God wants us to be. We got to start realizing that the words that Jesus said were true. These things which you've seen me do and greater you can do. We make a hundred different excuses about what that means. But what that means is greater than what he did you can do. That's what it means. What can be accomplished in the life of a man or woman who is totally and completely and utterly surrendered to God was given to us as an example. His name is Jesus Christ, who always did what the Father told him to do, who always spoke what the Father told him to speak, who set aside his power and came and pictured for you and I what a man could accomplish totally and completely surrendered to the Holy Spirit and to the Father. That's what Philippians chapter 2, 5 and 8 is all about. Same thing. The world's full of ups and downs, but we can have more. We can have more than this. We can have more of a relationship. We can truly have God meet us in the quiet place and spend time with us and, and, and speak to us through His Spirit or through His Word or through worship. And, and there's no end to what God can accomplish through us as long as we never reach a point where we say it's good enough. Life's good. I'm just going to take it easy. I don't think God calls us to take it easy. I think he calls us to open it up. Therefore, in verse 23, the Lord left those nations without driving them out immediately. Nor did he deliver them into the hand of Joshua. Now, as we, as we close, we've got a couple minutes, and I won't spend too much time, but turn with me to Psalm 106. Psalm 106. I just want to read it. Now, I'm not going to make any comment on it, but if you just want to follow with me, I just want to read through Psalm 106 and see what the culmination, what, what the culmination is all about toward the end of the psalm. 
Praise the Lord. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His mercy endures forever. Who can utter the mighty acts of the Lord? Who can declare all His praise? Blessed are those who keep justice, and he who does righteousness at all times. Remember me, O Lord, with the favor you have towards your people. O visit me with your salvation, that I may see the benefit of your chosen ones, that I may rejoice in the gladness of your nation, that I may glory with your inheritance. We have sinned with our fathers. We have committed iniquity. We have done wickedly. Our fathers in Egypt did not understand your wonders. They did not remember the multitude of your mercies, but rebelled by the sea, the Red Sea. Nevertheless, he saved them for his name's sake, that he might make his mighty power known. He rebuked the Red Sea also, and it dried up. So he led them through the depths as through the wilderness. He saved them from the hand of him who hated them, and redeemed them from the hand of the enemy. The waters covered their enemies. There was not one of them left. And they believed his words and they sang his praise. They soon forgot his works. They did not wait for his counsel, but lusted exceedingly in the wilderness and tested God in the desert. And he gave them their request, but sent leanness to their souls. When they envied Moses in the camp and Aaron, the saint of the Lord... The earth opened up and swallowed Dathan and covered the faction of Abiram. And a fire was kindled in their company. The flame burned up the wicked. But they made a calf at Horeb and worshipped the molded image. Thus they changed their glory into the image of an ox that eats grass. They forgot God their Savior who had done great things in Egypt. Wondrous works in the land of Ham. Awesome things by the Red Sea. Therefore he said that he would destroy them, had not Moses' his chosen one stood before him in the breach to turn away his wrath, lest he destroy them. Then they despised the pleasant land. They did not believe his word, but complained in their tents, and did not heed the voice of the Lord. Therefore he raised his hand in an oath against them, to overthrow them in the wilderness, to overthrow their descendants among the nations, to scatter them in the lands." And they joined themselves also to Baal of Peor. And they ate sacrifices made to the dead. Thus they provoked him to anger with their deeds. And a plague broke out among them. And Phineas stood up and intervened. And the plague was stopped. And that was accounted to him for righteousness. To all generations forevermore. They angered him also at the waters of strife. So that... It went ill with Moses on account of them, because they rebelled against his spirit, so that he spoke rashly from his lips. They did not destroy the peoples concerning whom the Lord had commanded them, but they mingled with the Gentiles and learned their works. They served their idols, which became a snare to them. They even sacrificed their sons and their daughters to demons and shed innocent blood. The blood of their sons and of their daughters whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan and the land was polluted with blood. Thus they were defiled by their own works and played the harlot by their own deeds. Therefore the wrath of the Lord was kindled against his people so that he abhorred his own inheritance and he gave them into the hand of the Gentiles. And those who hated them ruled over them. Their enemies also oppressed them, and they were brought into subjection under their hand. Many times he delivered them, but they rebelled in their own counsel, 
and were brought low for their iniquity. Nevertheless, he regarded their affliction when he heard their cry. And for their sake, he remembered his covenant and relented according to the multitude of his mercy. He also made them to be pitied by all who carried them away captive. And the prayer, save us, O Lord our God, and gather us from among the Gentiles to give thanks to your holy name and to triumph in your praise. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel from everlasting to everlasting and let all the people say, Amen. Praise the Lord. Save us, O Lord. Hosanna. Save now. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord God, we just give you thanks for this time that we could spend in your word. Father, I pray, God, that that your word would work that perfect work in our life. God, that it would be received, Father. That our eyes would be open and our ears would be unplugged and we would desire to take your word and apply it to our life. That when we look at the mistakes of the children of Israel, rather than looking down our nose at them, we would realize we live in a similar day. So Lord, save us. Save now. Keep us out of the hand of the Gentiles. Let us not become friends with the world, lovers of the world, making peace with the world. And ultimately being condemned with the world. But let us love you with a pure heart. Whole. Complete. I don't want to add you, God, to my life. I want to give you my life. I don't want to give you this piece or that piece or this corner or that closet. I want you to rule and reign as king in my life. God, I want you to help me learn the lessons that men so often forget. To not be satisfied. To realize that when I look at a hero of faith, it's not an example of something that I cannot achieve because I have already been given the victory. There's nothing else that has to happen, just my submission to you. Accepting your will as the outpouring of your love in my life. And trusting you in my whole heart. No matter what. God, I pray that you would pour out your spirit upon your people. That you would bring revival to this place that you would bring revival to our hearts because before revival can pour out those doors it's got to break me it's got to break us individually for these are the things that God desires a broken and a contrite spirit Father I pray that you would work here among us God as we thank you For indeed, you are our Redeemer. You are our Savior. And may we never lose sight that you have won the victory. We give you all the praise and the glory for it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.